Communications is key in any political campaign. But one particular groundbreaking moment during Howard Dean's presidential run solidified how transformative digital engagement can be for communicators. It was the first time that fundraising was linked to public communications and it changed the relationship between the candidate and their audience. It asked them not just to feel, but to do. That's Brent Colburn, Vice President of Communications at the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, and my guest on today's episode of the Arthur W. Page New CCO Podcast, where we explore what it takes to be a next-gen CCO. I'm Stacy Tank, CCO at The Home Depot. Today, I'm talking with Brent about the galvanizing role that digital engagement plays in politics. Brent, thanks so much for being here today. Welcome. Thanks, Stacy. Excited to be here. You're a veteran of every presidential campaign since the year 2000, except for the most recent. Why did you join the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative? You know, politics was uh, my life's work uh, coming out of graduate school for about 16 years. And, you know, I was lucky enough to work for everyone from Al Gore to President Obama. But that kind of chapter in my life was winding down in 2015, 2016. And I was looking for kind of the next thing I could do where I could both grow my skill set as a communicator, but also still be involved in uh, something that had kind of a public interest and a public impact. And I was lucky enough to join the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, which some of your listeners may know is uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Priscilla Chan's philanthropic organization. So Mark and Priscilla, a little over a year and a half ago, uh, when their first daughter was born, uh, made a pledge to give away 99% of their wealth in support of the causes that they cared about. And the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative is the vehicle to do a lot of that work. So uh, think of us as a philanthropy, but also one that's trying to do some innovative things in terms of bringing technology to bear on issues that impact people's lives and really trying to drive forward progress on the issues that Mark and Priscilla care about deeply. Brent, tell us about what happened with the Howard Dean campaign and how that movement was crucial to understanding the impact and the power of digital engagement. Sure. You know, I think in some ways people tend to skip over the Dean campaign uh, and go right to the amazing impact that the first Obama campaign had in the digital space when they think about digital communications, particularly in politics, but kind of across the board. Uh, And I was lucky enough, served as the research director on Governor Dean's campaign in 2003 and 2004 to have a front row seat to a lot of the innovations that came out of that campaign. And I think what's important to remember, Stacey, is most of those innovations were really organic. It's not like there was a a plan at the beginning. It was a group of really well-intentioned, really smart people on a very scrappy campaign that uh, at first no one really gave a lot of attention to who were just looking for new ways to have an impact and new ways to connect with voters. And digital platforms for the first time really in history presented an opportunity to do that. Um, It's funny, in the age of Facebook and Twitter and Snapchat, uh, it seems a little bit like the dark ages now, but at the time, what we were talking about were blogs. We were talking about using online organizing tools like Meetup to bring people together, and for the first time, using digital platforms for fundraising. Uh, And that fundraising piece is key. Because what what that did was it lowered the barrier for people, for average citizens, to really be involved in our campaign, not just by voting for uh, Governor Dean, uh, not just by door knocking, but by putting their own personal resources behind the campaign. And what we found was that a donation, be $20, $15, whatever people could afford, that translated not just into more resources for the campaign, it was a sign of commitment from that individual that they would be willing to do more, to tell their neighbors, to, to 
you know, go to Iowa and knock on doors, to drive to New Hampshire, to pick up the phone and make phone calls. So that merging of what traditionally had been very different tracks of communications through the digital space on that campaign, I think, was very groundbreaking. Was there a particular aha moment that really opened your eyes to the power of digital and social media? There's actually kind of two moments that stick out uh, when I think about uh, that campaign. One, kind of in the positive space, that ability to continue to directly connect with our supporters, to go around kind of mass media, if you will, and continue to not just be able to see and track their support, but actually leverage that support into resources was really, really eye-opening for me. Mm-hmm. On the kind of the negative side, you know, the infamous Dean scream, you know, showed the power of social media as an accelerant. So here's a moment that you know, happened on a a Monday night as the caucus is closing out. We've already come in third in the caucus. By the time we wake up on Tuesday morning, that that was a moment that had a life of its own. And I I really do think that the digital space, the ability to turn news around quicker, kind of the beginnings really of the 24-hour news cycle, both on the digital platforms and kind of the mature platforms like CNN, really showed that, you know, even more so than before, now more than ever, you had to jump on things right away or you were going to lose control of the narrative. So the digital tools that were used during the Dean campaign really came into their own during the Obama campaign. But I think you see a lot of ideas that were kind of first formed in 2003 and 2004, picked up in very smart ways by the Obama campaign in 2007 and 2008. So some of the ones that stick out as I look back are being open to using new tools. So this seems like a simple thing, but I think so often we think that getting better at something means just taking the playbook that we're already executing and just executing it with more resources or more efficiently. And and the Obama campaign was willing to take a step back and say, we're not going to do things like traditional campaigns. We're going to try some new things. That included really uh, doubling down on online tools that empowered individuals to be a critical part of the campaign. And what you saw through the Obama campaign was bringing supporters inside. So that meant giving them tools to self-organize. It meant recognizing that all of them are communicators, right? So we need to empower those people by not just giving talking points to uh, spokespeople, but making sure that average citizens had the information they needed to talk to their neighbors, to go knock on doors, and to really be an avenue of communication for the campaign. And then I think what you saw was a scaling of ideas. So as technology has progressed, not just in our ability to connect on digital platforms, but in our ability to produce content quickly, we started to push that out. So in 2003-2004 on the Dean campaign, we were doing some in-house video production. By 2007, in 2008, you know, I worked out of our Detroit office in Michigan for the general election. I had a videographer on staff. I had editing capability. I had a fair amount of autonomy from the Chicago office to produce pieces of content around auto issues or things that might matter to to people in Michigan, but might not matter to somebody in, say, Virginia. So you saw that scaling of the ability to do content creation closer to the people that were consuming it. So if anything, I think a lot of what you saw was an openness to do things and just a doubling down on some of the tactics that had worked in the previous campaign. As you left the world of politics and joined the world of nonprofit with Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, how did you take all of the learnings about digital and apply them in your new setting? So one of the interesting things, Stacey, about having done a number of 
political campaigns back to back is that you also see the emergence of new tools and new technologies. For instance, in 2008, Twitter is brand new. I think only a handful of tweets actually came out of the Obama campaign. By 2012, uh, in Chicago, we had almost every senior leader had their own kind of identity on Twitter. We had Twitter accounts that were focused specifically on different constituencies or different issues that we wanted to drive message around. So you see these emerging technologies. And to me, the lesson of that is is that you have to hire people and teach communicators not around the tool, but around attitudes and around adaptability. So as we move into kind of this next phase, 2016, 2020, some of the work we're doing at the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, we're not necessarily trying to just optimize the tools that exist. We're trying to build teams that will flex when that next tool comes on the scene that none of us are anticipating at this time. What specific communication challenges is Chan Zuckerberg facing in this brave new digital world? We have a number of challenges like any organization, especially any new organization. So, you know, one is just kind of how do we take a number of different issue areas that we are engaged in? At the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, we do work in education around personalized learning. We do work in science around building tools for scientists to help them in their scientific research. How do we take all of those disparate actions and actually start to bring them together into a narrative that supports the work we're doing? So, um, you know, some of that is understanding the work better. So we're bringing in experts, people who direct communications for each one of these specific pillars who are grounded in that work, and then really making sure that all of them are connected to a value system that reflects Mark and Priscilla and how they want to have an impact and ultimately how we want CZI to be seen in the public space. So, you know, we have something unexpected come up every single day, just like everybody else. How do we actually deal with those issues, but also carve out the space to try to do creative and innovative things? Brent, it's great to hear you talk about separating and protecting time to create innovative ideas from just getting drowned out in the day-to-day. I think a lot about that, too, and I think it's really important in the world we live in, which is so chaotic. Do you have any tips for us on how you're actually doing that successfully with your team? There's a bunch of pieces to doing this right, and no one ever gets it right. I think it's a constant struggle for anyone who works in this field. But some of the tactics we've tried to use are, one, having people whose primary responsibility is doing reactive, right? So we have a chief spokesperson. A big part of her portfolio is to really deal with kind of crisis situations as they come up. So you want to wall off a certain amount of staff time. You also, when I talk about innovative and proactive versus kind of reactive, what I really mean by reactive is what I would put in the must-do category. So that can be a crisis that comes up. It can also be how do you support existing work? So for instance, if we have a series of grants that are coming out, you know, being very mindful mindful and very practical upfront about, do we actually need to do kind of the full suite of communications around this grant? So being willing to say no to some things internally and being able to articulate why that might not be as important as some of the other work. Some of it is in the hiring process, like everything we do. So hiring people that are kind of obsessed with and really excited about doing creative and innovative work. And then something as simple as setting aside one staff meeting a month or a certain amount of time a week to do brainstorming, right? So to really say, you know, we're going to all put our devices down, we're going to put a common challenge on the table, and we're going to work through creative ways that we can approach that. Um, You know, one, I think that will keep your staff engaged and excited. Two, you never know what kind of good ideas come out of that. Uh, And three, it actually really solves a problem that exists in digital communications that I've wrestled with and I've seen wrestled with a lot of places, which is the people who have the best ideas 
often are not the most senior people. So we saw this a lot when I worked at the Defense Department. I mean, talk about a hierarchical organization where, you know, who's in the meeting is very much tied to, you know, uh, what rank they are and the number of years they've served. Problem with that is most people who really know how to use digital tools in a creative way are, are younger, right, who are in their 20s. They may not traditionally get in the meeting. So building inclusive brainstorming spaces where you can kind of pull all of that information and all of those ideas out of people, I think will help spark that proactive uh, kind of approach and really also just like give you a huge field of ideas from which uh, you can kind of pull which ones make sense and which ones might work for different problems you're trying to solve. Great insights about how we can do that with our teams. And we've played with things on my team like half-day Fridays, no-meeting Fridays, throwing titles out the window, trying to be in more open, innovative spaces. Uh, I think it makes a big difference. And I think if we don't make time and space for this, we won't be successful in the future. Digital has really democratized the world, and it's created a new level of transparency that wasn't possible even five years ago. How do you lean into that at Chan Zuckerberg and make it in service of some of the issues and the social opportunities that you guys are trying to advance? It's a really good question. By creating direct connections with the folks you're communicating with, so through Facebook, through other platforms, you really empower them to be communicators. It also means that by them letting you into their lives in a more intimate way than we used to, say, through television or through newspapers, um, they expect to have that same level of kind of insight into your life, into your organization. So uh, it's important uh, today in a way that it's never been important before. What they are seeing in your communications doesn't feel contrived. It feels like it speaks to the people that work at the organization, that it speaks to the, uh, the values of the organization. So we try to do things just by making kind of do a humanization check before we put things out, right? What is this content? Does this look like something? Does it feel authentic to what we're trying to say? Does it feel like it connects with the issues and with the people? And really look at it more as a conversation than just us pushing information out the door. How are you thinking about and approaching content creation and syndication? This is actually a big issue for us. So most of the issues that we care about, we can't have the kind of impact we want to have on our own, right? So Mm -hmm. uh, thinking about science, for instance, something that feels a little bit removed, but is actually very immediate to people's lives. Mark and Priscilla announced late last year they're going to commit $3 billion over the next 10 years to impact scientific research. That feels like a lot, but uh, the reality is the National Institutes for Health spends over 10 times that just in a single year to support the kind of basic science research that we care about. So what that means is we have to get other people excited. We have to get other people to be thinking about these things, and we have to get other people kind of in the ball game if we're going to have the kind of global change that we want. And one of the ways we believe that you can do that is through high quality content. And in this case, when I say high quality, again, that doesn't mean overproduced. That doesn't mean uh, any particular look or feel. What it means is content that connects with people, that sparks people to think, that can be the beginning of a conversation and can really get them excited about uh, not just doing something themselves, but talking to others. I think we're seeing that broadly now where people can't just be aware of you. They have to be totally invested in you. And with that kind of investment comes a level of trust as well. I think that means as communicators and as organizations and institutions, you know, we have to be very mindful of what we're putting out into the public space. And we also have to be mindful that with the kind of transparency we have today and the type of tools we have today, that that barrier between internal and external communications has disappeared. 
That's really interesting. To that end, in an environment where all communication that's internal is also external, feels like the stakes are really high, how do you still make it a safe space for your team to go fast, to make mistakes, to learn from them, and then just do it again? I think ultimately it's a question of leadership. Mm -hmm. And in this case, not just saying the right things, but doing the right things. So we're very, very fortunate in the leadership that we have. People like obviously Mark and Priscilla, but also David Pluff, who's on our leadership team. Uh, Jim Shelton, who runs our education work. Corey Bargman, who runs our science work. They're all people who not just in words, but in action set a tone for being willing to accept honest mistakes, being willing to learn from our mistakes, understanding that just because we're invested in something today doesn't mean that it's going to be the right strategy in 6, 12, or 24 months, being willing to step away from ideas uh, that may not work out the best. The world is radically more transparent than it was even a few years ago because of digital. And sometimes that helps us be more authentic, but it can be pretty uncomfortable in the moment, too. Any stories to share to that effect? One of the amazing things about kind of the democratization of information through digital platforms is that, you know, leaders can't hide from difficult conversations anymore. So, you know, it used to be you go back even 10, 15 years, it was easy to script your leader, right? So um, not that any of us ever did any of this, but it was easy to say we're going to pick a moment where we have a safe reporter or we're going to only do certain press engagements uh, based on the questions that we want to get. And The reality is that if you do that today, there's a whole world of people out there that are watching, and now they have a tool that allows you to call BS on it, right? So you have to get out and talk about difficult issues. You have to be willing to engage on them. And we saw this at the Defense Department when I was there around some of the issues with the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, some of the issues around transgender troop serving. Um, You know, you have to have a strategy to proactively talk about even uncomfortable issues, uh, because if you don't, it's going to send a signal and it's going to be its own type of communication. How do social and digital measurement tools play a role in your communications? So our use of measurement is still evolving. We're still relatively new as an organization, but from a kind of attitudinal and DNA perspective, it's central to what we do. You know, like everybody, as strange as this may sound for such a well-resourced organization, we're resource constrained and our biggest resource constraint is time. So if we aren't measuring, you know, we don't have a sense of what's being effective and what's not. And we may end up spending and wasting a lot of staff time on things that don't make sense. We're maybe at 5% of a 100% solution right now. Like if there are people out there that are interested in really revolutionizing the work of communications, this is a problem that needs to be solved. Uh, And if there's someone out there that's solving it, I would love if they would contact us. We want to learn from others and really be on the cutting edge of how you measure impact when it comes to both traditional and digital communications. Put me on that list too. (laughs) That is definitely something that we're all struggling with. How are you thinking about developing your team's capabilities to make sure that you're keeping up with the rapid pace of change in the outside world? I think the most important thing you do as a manager is hiring your team or assembling your team. It can be from people that already are inside your organization. And I think you need to be looking for two things when you're looking at a potential teammate. Uh, One is, is obviously current capability, right? So do you have the right mix for today? Do you have people that are experts in leveraging Facebook? Do you have people that are are great writers who can do kind of the written piece? Do you have video capability? But just as important is hiring people who have the right attitude and are willing to and excited about learning the next thing, right? 
somewhere in Boston or Bangalore or, or Beijing in a basement, there is a, a kid inventing the next communications tool. And the team you have today is the team that's going to have to figure out how to leverage it. So you better be hiring critical thinkers. You better be hiring people who like to learn and grow professionally. And you better be hiring people who are excited about and comfortable with change because if we did this podcast in five years, we'd be talking about a whole new set of tools. And some of the things we think are cutting edge today may seem, you know, archaic by then. This has been great, Brent. I can't thank you enough for being here and making the time to share all of this with us. Thank you. No, thank you, Stacy. This has been a real pleasure. Really enjoyed being on the podcast. That's all for this episode of the new CCO podcast. We hope you'll join us again. <laughs>